This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It is 5 p.m. on 640 Toronto, folks, and I, your host, Maroki Tong, and my co-host, Andre Pru, is here to bring you Tasting Together, and we are rebranding to an awesome new show, like all about tasting air and photosynthesis and how we're going to derive nutrition in the most unpleasant way possible, through tasting nothing. What are you doing, Maroki? It's April Fool's, Andre. No. April Fool's. April Fool's ended at what? noon. You can't what do you, a joke. What? Yeah, if you do the joke after 12, then you're the fool. You just pulled an April I, Fool's on yourself, Maroki. I literally have never heard of this in my entire life. <laughs> oh, man. I thought it was I, like a super what? well-known I, thing. No, I absolutely have played jokes on people all day, or I'm pretty sure I read, used to read like comic strips where people would have these long jokes and they run all day, and at the very end of the day, they're like April Fools. Oh man, it's been quite the day. I always love seeing like what the the corporate April Fools are, and then you know I know Monday morning we're gonna be hearing on uh, on Six Forty Toronto if any of the the um, April Fools that took place today were actually newsworthy for a change, but I don't know. I think it's been like well, the one that uh, I know the one that everyone's probably going to talk about. Maybe we'll touch on it when we speak with Danny Longo a little bit later. Is the the alcohol tax is coming into effect today, which I guess for some <laughs> people would feel like the biggest joke. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I think you've just redeemed yourself from playing the April Fool on yourself. But yes, it it definitely is <laughs> is a joke. But I mean, as we're getting into April here, I mean, I love this time of year, um, just because it means that. We're getting to the point where winter is getting firmly behind us. I'm trying to be really tentative because it's my favorite thing about Canadian spring is we usually get about three springs. Like, you know, you get false spring and then second spring and then maybe like a third spring and maybe 11 seas. And then. Oh, it, absolutely. Then real spring. My winter tires in. don't come off till May. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. And it's just like my wife's birthday is on April 19th. And it's the thing about. You know, both being so closely connected to the wine industry and then where my wife's birthday is, this is just like, I remember what spring is most years, but it's like 50-50 because I can never really remember when the weather's gorgeous for my wife's birthday, but I remember when it's really bad, like in 2018 where it was an ice storm and you know, I had to rent a Jeep Wrangler so I could do just some things around the city that day. <laughs> I know my partner's birthday is on the 9th of April, so he and your wife can commiserate about uh, being April babies and how yeah. the idea of spring is often just like a dream. But, you know, the one symbol of spring that, that in spite of the bad weather, I guess, Easter would be around the corner very Easter, shortly. I yes. don't remember exactly when it is. I'm pretty sure it's actually on the same weekend as Passover. They often do coincide despite being on two different calendars. Um, but, Easter tends to always sell you the image of spring, or at least my childhood visions of no, Easter. No, that's pretty like that, standard. Right? Like yeah, blooming. So we're a week pastels. early on it. We're we're a week early on it. Easter Sunday is April 9th. Good Friday is next next week on the seventh. So long weekend. Yay, everyone. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you'll be tuning in to Tasting Together next Saturday as part of your long weekend. But yeah. I mean, you you and I, we were kind of kicking around like just what to do for Easter on the show. And it's just kind of dawned on me that like I say the word Christmas and I think everyone just has visions of turkey dancing in their head. And, you know, we did a good job, I think, covering some of the other cultural sensitivities around Christmas this year. But it's just like, 
you know, I think about the good old fashioned North American Easter and I don't know if it's, if it has that like iconic, you know, same vision of turkeys dancing in your head. I wonder if it's because in some ways Easter um, as a holiday is more widely celebrated by those who would be practicing Christianity or Catholicism and um, I guess other religions are like and, and branches of religion under that larger umbrella. And I'm going to apologize for my ignorance there as someone who's not a practicing Catholic. But, uh, you know, for me, in some ways, Easter Sunday had some significance in the past because one of my best friends is Christian and his family will, you know, take the effort for those weekends to dedicate to, you know, having the feast with the family. But for, I think, the broader public, um, it's not, it doesn't have the same thing where Christmas is widely celebrated as almost like a cultural phenomenon more than a religious yeah. Well, for uh, sure. I, you know, I, I love how you, how you sort of unpacked that there. And it's, it's just also the secularization of Christmas has never really crossed over to Easter, I think, quite in the same way. It's also just like, you know, I think the basis of Christmas is a little simpler to unpack a baby is born, that means a big deal to a lot of people. And before anyone sends angry messages to the station, uh, I am a Protestant, I'm Lutheran, I have taken part in Easter Sunday and Christmas, but, you know, just kind of breaking it down and the other part of Christmas being a jolly red man in a suit gives you gifts where, you know, the, the Christian side of Easter involves the crucifixion of a man, which isn't exactly something that... Uh, I think a corporation has found a way to package up as something appetizing for lack of a better <laughs> term. And then I don't know the thought of a giant bunny that walks around and maybe is anthropomorphous and you know, the whole Cadbury cream eggs, which are delicious, but the whole like clucking bunny is all just a little weird. Even for me, I think they've maybe never found a way to reconcile it. Right? Like when you have Christmas trees, you could put, religious ornaments on a tree um whereas it's not like you can really coincide the searching for chocolate eggs and bunnies and little chicks uh having you know in the spring with the rising of jesus i guess like for me it's not they're not one in the same they're not one in the same story so how can you find a way to celebrate easter in this context and then how do you find a way to celebrate easter in this context and the two just don't coincide you know, I okay, so I just want to make it really clear to the the listeners here is that when in no way, shape, or form are we making fun of the cultural and the religious significance of Easter. But what we are trying to talk about is why that Easter meal isn't as iconic as a lot of other holidays. I just feel like as you and I are, are laughing quite a bit, and I want to make sure that you know we're we're trying to be respectful, but we are one hundred percent not making fun of the religious connotation. Happy Easter to you. Yeah, and maybe this is a good time for us to talk a little bit about what we, what maybe we have discovered are the Easter feasts, considering that it is a show about tasting food. We've talked about the chocolate eggs. Yes. Clearly, that is a very prominent part oh, of my childhood. I, I love All the chocolate eggs. You know, that could be one of the things, too, where uh, I think it's Cadbury who make the mini eggs. They've sort of shot, shot themselves in the foot a little bit, where, you know, mini eggs used to be something that I would really look forward to that once a year when Easter rolled around. And now you can get mini eggs at any time of the year. They're just... They're not special anymore. You know what was my favorite one? 
And it's not even necessarily for the flavor where those Cadbury creme eggs, just because it looked like an egg yeah. inside, right? Like it had the whites, had the little yolk. I thought it was so cool. I think, you know, I think most of us agree these days that it's <laughs> very much a sugar bomb. And I think as a result, it doesn't, it's not well, as attractive. Then, but I, like I will get them and I eat them on the sole purpose that they look like the way they do. The recipe for Cadbury cream eggs and like the whole formula has changed as well. I think you and I are of the same vintage where I remember having to, you know, painstakingly peel that foil wrapper off that would take about, you know, five minutes because the egg was so sticky that it would just stick to it. But I also remember them being a gooey mess where I don't know if you've had a cream egg lately, but the inside is more of a like a solid. It doesn't have that like gooeyness. And I just like... I feel bad for the kids these days that they don't get to become an utter sticky mess anymore when they're eating their cream eggs. Now I feel like I need to procure one just to see if um, if it's true. I will say as an adult, I have learned to also appreciate them when they're made into a McFlurry around this time of year. <laughs> oh man, now I'm hungry. For McDee's. Yeah. Um, so it's completely switching gears now that we've uh, we've talked a little bit about why Easter food isn't as iconic as Christmas. Something that is <laughs> definitely iconic in many regions of the country is pizza. And uh, I realize we haven't like, we've been doing this show for almost a half year and we haven't touched on anything to do with pizza as of yet. So stick around after the break on 640 Toronto. We are going to get into some of the best pies in Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I am not Maroki Tong. I'm Andre Pru. <laughs> that you are. <laughs> um, I know I've <laughs> talked about it on the show a little bit, but, uh, you know, I have been living with a tiny human. My daughter, Spencer, was born in January, and um, it's made a big shift in my eating habits. I am someone where I was cooking dinner most nights of the week and then going out on the odd weekend. So now I've swapped a lot of my cooking for, uh, you know, meals that can be eaten really well left over. So like making a big mac and cheese or a lasagna on like a Monday and then eating that till a Wednesday uh, just to make up for the time of like keeping up with a baby. Yeah, well, I appreciate big pot cooking. That's something we do at home. Eric makes what he calls a jambalaya, which probably is an insult to jambalayas everywhere. Not that it isn't because it isn't delicious, but more that it might not be really officially what jambalaya is, but it's like a big one pot stew that's just full of vegetables and some protein and we just <laughs> eat it slowly paired with brown rice over several days. See, now you're going to make me feel guilty about what I want to talk about in, in this segment here because I think... When you're just dealing with the exhaustion of having a tiny human in your house, you tend to slide back into into some comfort food. So I've been hitting up a lot of pizza lately. And, you know, pizza is just something I really, I like to think about it from the entomology of pizza in Toronto. Because we have so many different things going on and so many great pizza joints. But, I mean, do you think that Toronto has its own, like, style of pizza? I mean, how many places truly have their own style of pizza? So there is the, is it Chicago that does the deep dish pizza? Chicago deep dish. One of my favorites. I want a pizza that's so thick in like cheese and toppings. Like, you know, one slice will, will do it for you. Yes. Chicago is definitely one of them. 
And then what? There's a New York style, I guess. New York style. Yep. Standard. And that's actually one of my least favorite styles of pizza where it's like super thin, you know, kind of massive. You got to fold it in half, but it's just like, it's just not super interesting, right? Like it definitely is like street food that you eat on the go. You got any other, do you want me to go through some of the other styles? Yeah, you, you, I feel like you're the one who's the expert on this because I will fully admit to you, pizza culture, although, like, though, though, like, when I enjoy my pizza on a cheat day, they are delicious and I love putting thick, funky flavors on a pizza. Like, that's yes. what I like to do, get adventurous. But for the most, like, if you try and tell me all the different styles, I, I can tell you that I'm not an aficionado that way and I don't really get that deep into the details. So run us through the details, Andre. All right, all right. So we've also got Detroit style that's become pretty popular up and coming, which is a take on kind of the deep dish. It comes in a rectangle pan. It's made with a lot of oil. It gets good and crispy and it's known for putting the sauce on top of the toppings, which sounds really strange if you haven't done it, but it's super delicious. And then you got to go to the OG Italian places. Like there's the Napoli style, which is the thin crust wood-fired pizza that you find so many places. And um, you've got the Roman style pizza. I got to give a shout out to Fortino's and their Penny Fresco brand where they do a really good job with Roman style pizza. But when I went to Rome last summer, I just ate as many slices of Roman pizza as I could. And then my humble prairie upbringing out in Saskatchewan, we've got the little pizza on the prairie, which is not very little at all, that Regina and Saskatchewan have their own style of thick crust pizza that if you haven't had, I highly recommend it. So I will say that based on everything you told me, then I clearly enjoy the Italian Napolese pizzas the most because I love a thin crust um, and I love wood fired. And for me, the thin crust is I don't want the pile of like breadiness <laughs> to overwhelm the toppings. Like I want to taste all the toppings and I want to taste the sauce. And if there's too much bread in that, that just mutes those flavors. So I just need the crust to be an awesome, tiny little vessel. Now I even have memories. Like my dislike for crust was so high that I was that kid that oh, threw no. my pizza crust. Oh, I was absolutely that kid. I, I ate my pizza to the crust and then I tossed the crust. And then I stopped doing that as I got older because I decided it was wasteful. And the day they started putting out dipping sauces was a game changer for me. Now, then I started eating the crust because I could put more flavors on it. But if it's just by itself, I didn't want it. So that so I don't know if that tells you, Andre, exactly like my relationship with crusts on a pizza. <laughs> well, I think I'm with you, though. The, the crust needs to be delicious. So, you know, I guess I sort of started this. We've gone through all the different styles. But I think one thing, I don't think Toronto has its own style of pizza. But Toronto is definitely a thin crust city. And I know we have like a couple of places, like if I need to give a shout out, I mentioned Detroit style pizza. If you haven't had a chance to go to Descendants Pizza, um, you definitely need to make the trip to do that. It is like, it it is a perfect way to get, um, I guess, uh, acquainted with the Detroit style pizza, (laughs) but it is in no way, shape or form healthy in any I mean, pizza in itself is already not like a health, the healthiest choice, which is why if you're well, doing it, you got to <laughs> make it delicious. But like it is, it is very like greasy, delicious, crunchy. The, the crust is like one of the best parts of a pizza that style. I think like one of the biggest difficult points for me learning to appreciate pizza is because I am gluten and lactose intolerant. It was ah. a little bit difficult, um, especially when my intolerances were at its 
full-blown highest in my teens and my early 20s to enjoy pizza other than the very occasional cheat day. But I will say I, I indulged, if you want to use indulge air quotes, um, I definitely was like into the cauliflower crust pizzas. Okay. I definitely, when I was, I you know, I tried, you know, like um, attending vegan food fairs or raw food fest. I definitely have had like the dehydrated crust, pe- like nut seed crust pizzas. Yeah. Um, and I, I really liked it. I love a good cauliflower crust and it actually, I actually in some ways appreciate that some of the, just like the fast food chains, you know, like I I think pizza pizza actually like does a cauliflower crust now. And it, it honestly shocked me when I saw that they brought it in. I was like, wow, it's really taking the storm. And I think, you know, most Italian folks might skewer me when i if i ever suggested to them that they should use cauliflower as their crust as opposed to just well-made dough which Mm. is fine i'll completely give it to them it just means that i have to enjoy it on a little bit of a cheap day versus as a regular daily eats for me yeah so pizza pizza does do their cauliflower crust i don't know i just think pizza is one of those things where we can let people fight out what's authentic and what isn't but it's just one of those foods where it has a life of its own. I mean, I'm talking to you about Saskatchewan style pizza. It's still something that's just super delicious. Um, I think in terms of, of thin crusts, though, uh, d- d- looking locally, I'm a big fan of pizza libretto and um, Maker's Pizza as well. Maddie Matheson's chain there that I think has a few locations in the city now. I don't know if you've had a chance There's to a check spot, out either one yeah. of them. No, I haven't. I know you sent an article on foodism to kind of show some spots in Toronto, and I will fully admit that I've basically not had any of them. So now I have a list that I need to slowly wiggle through. But there was, there is a restaurant <laughs> that I have been to, Pizza Pizza e Pazzi, Um, That's in my neighborhood on St. Clair West. It's um, towards Dufferin. I've not personally had their pizza, but my sister has. And my sister is definitely a pizza aficionado. She loves her pizza and pasta. And every time she comes and visits me, that's the place where she wants to go. So um, I think I have to go back and commit to it, it, the place is called Pizza Ipazzi. And here am I not having pizza at their place. Like I should probably show up and at least take a bite of their pizza. You know, the thing about this checklist, though, like I've eaten at most of these pizza places. And it's just a reminder of how great the pizza is in Toronto, even if we don't have a signature style to to, to say. Um but if you have a new baby coming, you should bookmark this list because this is basically like the new parent handbook for when you're too tired to cook and you're <laughs> looking for comfort at the end of an ooey, gooey, you know, slice of pizza. I guess the great thing about pizza is that even the finest pizza travels pretty well. Oh, definitely. So coming up after the break here, we are going to be highlighting. We, we talked a little bit about Easter at the beginning of the show, but we're going to be unpacking Passover. I'm very excited given that this is something that I have had the opportunity to experience with my partner's family over the years. So stick around. We'll be back with all the Passover goodies for you on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Well, Andre, I never thought that it would be a holiday that I would end up celebrating in my lifetime, but I'm very excited that for the first time in three years that I'll be going down to Massachusetts with my partner to celebrate Passover with his family this year. You know, it was quite an experience last year to have a chance to attend the Passover Seder with uh, you, Eric, and your family. 
And it's still just something where, you know, having grown up in a Christian household, um, you know, it's still just fascinating to see how other holidays are celebrated, especially around food. And I know that's something we've touched on a lot with this show. So um, we're actually joined by a guest. Um, Ellie Green is a singer and voice teacher in Toronto and the host of Jewish Music Toronto, a YouTube channel dedicated to diving into the details of classic Jewish songs and the people behind them. And Ellie, you're going to uh, school us and the listeners a little bit on about, uh, about the Passover Seder and what's going on with it. All right. Well, I will certainly try my best. So what would you like to know? You know for the folks out there who aren't familiar with Passover, like myself, uh, what is it all about? So in short, Passover as in short, Passover or Pesach as it's named in Hebrew is the Jewish people's holiday for celebrating our escape from ancient Egypt, the miracles that took place as part of the events of the Exodus and the first in the series of formative events that led to our becoming uh, not just the descendants from a particular family line, that of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but a nation unto itself. That's actually probably the most like it, <laughs> acute description I've ever heard of Passover from anyone before. So in some ways, <laughs> I've even learning something today. And it goes for, it goes for about what is it, Ellie, a week or is it like ten days? Yes. Yeah, so it's it's seven days in uh, Israel and I guess any other walled city, but in, in Israel specifically, um, and outside uh, in what we call Chutzlar, it's the outside of the land of Israel. It is eight days long. Okay. okay. Okay, got it. So when you're doing, um, I guess, celebrating a holiday for eight days, do you have a, a dinner every day as part of Passover? Or is there like one day that it just really kicks in? So it really depends on your traditions. Now, uh, as Maroki would know, uh, I am Orthodox. So I keep to a, a particularly stringent form of uh, following the traditions. And that would mean that in our case, we have a Seder on the first night, followed by another big lunch on the first day. Seder on the second night, followed by another big lunch on the second day. And then we have what's called Chol uh, Hamoid. It's these in-between days that are like weekdays. A lot of people don't necessarily do work on those days. Or, uh, like myself, I actually do work. Uh, and then you have the final two days of Passover, except again in Israel, where it's just one more day. And it's big meals at night, big meals during the day. We go to synagogue on those holiday portions. And for anybody who uh, happens to do regular services uh, during the week like they normally would, they, you would just go to services uh, for the three times in the day. I only enjoy one Seder dinner. And I can tell you that I don't think I'm usually able to walk the next day. I am so <laughs> full. So the fact that you're telling me that there is a seder not once but but more than once and then also several lunches as well i'm like yes. my god you guys eat <laughs> so well during this time well, i had no food, idea I, I have to say there are the, the two favorite things for me and this is i i will say i am spoiled as far as uh the way that i grew up in terms of passover but uh the food and the singing are the big things for me when it comes to passover well, so, I guess let's no, get into yeah, let's get into the food. But before we do get into the food, because that's definitely something I'm curious about. You mentioned just a minute ago that you are Orthodox, which means that we actually pre-taped this uh, interview because you don't work on the Sabbath, which is when this is airing. Did I get all that, that is right? Correct. I okay. keep 
I, I keep uh, I keep Shabbat or I keep Sabbath, and that means that yes, indeed, uh, I am completely offline right now as people are listening to this live. <laughs> so let's dive right into the food then. Um, we were talking about seder, you know, be the seder dinner, and I would love to hear like a little bit more from you, sort of what the seder dinner means for you and how how does that play out in your household. So the Seder is not just a dinner. It's a complete ceremony of which dinner is a major part. The Seder is a Passover tradition in which we recount the story of the Exodus, starting as far back as discussing Abraham's own father and the fact that he was an idol worshiper. We do it through songs and readings, lots of songs, actually, if you're anything like my family. And we talk about how we ended up in Egypt in the first place, highlight the slavery and oppression thrust upon us by the Egyptians, Praise God for the many ways in which we were saved, especially in the song Dayenu. And we try to bring everyone into the, into the discussion. And we're supposed to actually see ourselves as if we ourselves are being brought out of Egypt in this day and age. And uh, very particular to you guys, uh, there are four cups of wine as part of the Seder. <laughs> and yes, uh, certainly, certainly the food is important. We have the Seder plate, and that includes uh, six different representations of things from the Exodus story. And you have the matzah, which is the unleavened bread. Um, and that, at least in Ashkenazic tradition, uh, I bet you're most used to seeing the one that resembles a large cracker, those, especially the machine-made ones. Uh, you've also got uh, Svartic tradition, which is more like a pita and it's soft. Um, either way, the matzah is made exclusively from flour and water and must be made start to finish in just 18 minutes. And so if we're talking about food at the Seder, you've got uh, brisket. That's a big one for most, uh, most families. You've got gefilte fish, certainly. And I'm only talking from Ashkenazic tradition specifically, but those are some amazing ones. And what else? Uh, matzo ball soup, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, then if you wanted to look specifically at the Seder plate, uh, you have those certain elements which are used as part of the Seder. So as you're going along, you'll pick up certain elements and use them. So you have the salt water, which is meant to represent the tears of the Jewish people. You have the haroset, which is like the mortar that they used to build in Egypt and during their enslavement. You have the, uh, the maror, which is in it's meant to... You have the mara, which is meant to show our bitterness. And there are other portions as well, including these raw, which is meant to represent the Paschal offering. Although these days we're using uh, chicken bones instead of, uh, instead of lamb. I uh, actually managed to one year go to a butcher and just ask if he was willing to like share with me some discarded lamb bones so that I could have the lamb bone present. Uh, on the Seder plate. I figured I might as well go all out if we were going to host. It was when we were doing it virtually. So I was like, well, if I'm doing it at home, you know, I can't really ex enjoy all of Eric's mom's cooking. I could at least kind of go hardcore on the Seder plate. But I I actually love that you brought up gefilte fish because for the longest time, when I got into gefilte fish, I was just buying the jars from the grocery store and always assumed it was a little gray patty. And then you made us gefilte fish. <laughs> One time we visited, I was like, what is this beautiful plate of like this like big baked loaf it was so good i can't i i, I dream of that gefilte fish that's, regularly. that's my go-to with anybody who's not had it before oh so good 
I love the piece that you brought up about matzah because I actually didn't realize that matzah needed to be made in 18 minutes, start to finish. Start to finish. Absolutely. And why? So that has to do with uh, how it was made. Everything was done in haste as we were leaving Egypt. I'm giving you bare bones here, of course. Of course. But, uh, we say that uh, as they were leaving Egypt, they left with uh, without any time for the bread to rise. And so it became matzah. And matzah, it's very significant to us. It's right there in the Torah, in Exodus. It says, Shivat yamim tochel matzot. Seven days shall you eat matzot. It also continues on to say, No chametz may be in your possession, nor may leaven be seen in your possession in all your borders. So uh, we're not, like, we really clean out the whole house. We're making sure that uh, anything that is leavened products, they're put away. We sell it full on. There are contracts written up. We go to our rabbis. We have them sell our chametz to non-Jews. And that way uh, we are literally in no technical possession. Even if it's in what is technically our property, uh, we have no leavened products in our homes. Wow. That's quite something. I, I learned yeah. something very, very new today. Um, and I think that's just such like a significant part of the history and tradition. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for taking the time earlier this week to share your traditions and the delicious food that can grace the table over Passover. And since I likely will not see you before the holiday's over, I should give you an early Hak Sameach. A hug Kasher to you as well. A uh, happy and kosher Pesach to you as well, Maroki. And uh, thank you, Maroki and Andre. That's uh, very nice. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming up after the break, whether or not the government changed their mind on the big tax increase that was set to take place today on wine and beer. That's coming up on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm Andre Pru. I'm joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong, and I guess we're getting a little bit more serious than we usually do at this time of the show. Maroki, have you been watching your spending a little bit more carefully when it comes to your discretionary spending? Um, I would say overall, I know what you're alluding to, Andre, given that inflation is at an all-time high. I know everyone's been more conscientious. Um, I would just say, I'm just trying to be a more responsible spender overall. Something that definitely had both of our eyebrows raised was the uh, rise in the um, the excise tax, the the beer tax, as Bob and Doug McKenzie have been saying on this uh, very radio station with their commercials. And I mean, it's one of those things where when you get a chance to talk to the small producers, the beer producers, the wine producers, um, if the tax had gone through as it was proposed at like 6%, it was going to cost these these producers, these small businesses, a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know it's something that we actually brought up a couple of weeks ago, I guess, and I did joke about it at the start of the episode that, my goodness, it was something that was going to drop today. But um, I guess they did make some changes earlier this week. And Danny Longo from the Global Newsroom, who isn't quite with us live this weekend, but he did compile a report for us to give us the scoop on what happened earlier this week. The beer and alcohol industry had been sounding the alarm about a looming hike to the federal tax on beer, wine and spirits in recent weeks. And the budget presented earlier this week 
offers a break on the annual increase. The so-called excise tax is pegged to inflation, which means it was on track to increase by more than 6% on April 1st, a jump that would have taken the toll to 73 cents on a litre of wine and more than 37 cents for a litre of beer. Now, those excise fees are paid by brewers, wine and spirit makers, but the costs filter down for consumers as they add to the cost of doing business and pushing up retail prices. Peter Bullitt, owner of Great Lakes Brewery, says they're thrilled that the government has agreed to the reduction. Tax hikes never come at a good time, and this one, for sure, we've been advocating hard alongside with uh, Beer Canada and the Craft Brewers Association of Canada and the Canadian Coalition of Craft Everyone sort of joined together to try to get the government to... Uh, listen up and freeze this tax off. President of Beer Canada, C.J. Healy, says many small brewers have been struggling since the pandemic and the bigger tax increase could have been a death blow. Lots of the smaller players rely uh, to a larger proportionate extent on their own tap room or on local bars and restaurants. And as we saw that the pandemic, right, all those venues were closed. Uh, and hospitality has not recovered. Uh, in Toronto, the patios looked full last summer, but they were not as busy as they were previous. Healy and others in the industry had been advocating for the excise tax to be frozen for this year and next, but the government says the 2% cap is just for the 2023-24 fiscal year. Danny Longo, Global News. You know, I was surprised to see the government pull the 180 on the tax and do something a little bit more reasonable, but also it's something that's a bit of a relief because I know it's something I've said on this show before as well, is when it comes to alcohol, I don't mind paying the taxes on it. I mean, it it's a luxury product. Like we don't need alcohol to function as human beings. But I mean, the thing about this show is we're talking about, you know, the luxurious side of eating and drinking and you know, it is something that people need to enjoy their lives. And, you know, when we're dealing with things like a crazy high cost of living, um, you know, being able to eat out and and buy the favorite beer that you like at an affordable price is something that I think is important that we maintain as well. I, I really cannot help but just like scream April Fool's into the void <laughs> when we heard this news. Well, I, I think we were all surprised. I, I, I think, you know, when, when the government makes a statement that they're going to bring a tax up to 6%, it's very rare that they will pull back. I think that was just sort of the consensus when we were having discussions in advance of this conversation. And I think we've had this, you know, I know we've had this conversation about taxes and my regular statement is I understand taxes exist. Um, I think we, uh, as Canadians, benefit from the tax, aka healthcare and all that stuff. But yeah. alcohol is taxed at a level that is substantially higher than most consumables, luxury or not, yes. in the industry. And if you're going to be taxing that high, and I think there was some stats, and I know my stats are a little bit outdated at this point, um, but I would say I think about maybe maybe two years ago, I saw somewhere that the... Canadian wine industry as a whole, um, so I think that would include the hospitality side of it, brings in about $9 billion in revenue for Canada. So when I hear that number, I think to myself, well, then I would like to see where that money is going. Accountability in government is so important, especially when you're dealing with a product that's incredibly high tax. The thing that I'm a little bit doing a 180 on is, you know, as I've said, I don't mind paying the taxes, but, you know, talking to 
business owners in Niagara about the excise tax and, and just talking about the changes in taxation, like for some of these wineries and, and, and breweries, like you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars that they're going to have to charge. And we're already dealing in uh, an environment where when you're a craft brewer, you can't compete price wise with the large breweries. So, you know, it's, it's a good thing if you can offer a superior product. I know I've, I've, thrown some shade as the kids say at some of the large brewers on previous segments of this show but like we're getting to the point where it's becoming harder and harder to be competitive as a small business and the reality is even if you're an alcohol producer and ooh the whole evils of alcohol on society the government is is it feels like they're going out of their way to make sure that this industry is largely uncompetitive uh, and and it's super frustrating to see when you take a look at how well established uh, well established wine regions are in other parts of the world, or frankly, uh, like brewing regions as well. When you think of places like Portland, Oregon, or Napa Valley, the governments there have recognized the halo effect of having these well established industries. That it's not just ooh the evils of alcohol; it's the whole tourism industry that comes with it. It's the sales to local restaurants so that the dollars stay in your border. Right now in Ontario, restaurants are spending more money on wines that are being produced outside of Canada. Why would this government, all levels of government, not want to be doing anything to help encourage that domestic production so that those dollars stay within our borders and we can continue to pay for those things that you were just talking about, Maroki? Well, we've already seen a couple of breweries shutter their doors and um, there's a couple of wineries that have sold or shuttered their doors in the last few years. And I know one of their biggest issues was rising costs due to inflation. So when you throw a tax on top of that, as you mentioned, Andre, it absolutely can be a death knell for small business. And perhaps I wonder if we need to reframe how we even see. I mean, I, you know, I, this is going to get into a conversation about morality and I don't want to <laughs> dive too deep into that. But. But, you know, when you talk about like, ooh, the evils of alcohol, like, why do we need to frame it that way, right? Like, why can we not reframe drinking wine as as a craft, as, you know, the same way food, like foodies enjoy food, you're tasting and you're savoring. And when you visit wine country, there's a lot you can do in wine country. You know, you're sipping wine, you're pairing it with cheese, you're enjoying the vineyard, you're enjoying an afternoon out. It's a social event. It's not always about showing up you know, as a bachelor or bachelorette party and getting wasted, right? Like maybe we should, like we should be changing that narrative and stop even hinting that that's the narrative that, you know, consuming wine should be. Because when we talk about going to restaurants on a night out, I don't like, that's not the first vision that comes to mind for me. Yeah. I'm not thinking, oh, tonight I'm going to get gussied up and go to a restaurant and proceed to get sloppy. Like that's not what I'm thinking. You know, it's still just the um, the damage that prohibition has done to the culture on this continent with uh, regards to the alcohol culture. And I mean, even take a look at how advertising has run up until recent. If we think about beer commercials in the 90s, you know, um, it very much promoted a partying culture. And I think there is still a bit of a challenge to rein that in. And start talking about wine and craft beer as part of the meal and talk about these and celebrate these products as agricultural products as part of the meal, but still with the asterisk, like it's really important to promote responsible drinking where, you know, if we think back about those beer commercials from the 90s, the whole please drink responsibly is often spoken very quickly by a big voice man at the end of the commercial after you've just promoted this kick-ass party where the beer taps are flowing, right? Like we still just have a problem with how alcohol culture on this continent is looked at. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'd be curious to know if anyone has opinions about the price freeze. I know I think you and I feel a little bit relieved. I'm sure small business owners and wineries feel extremely relieved. Um, I'd be curious to know if anyone actually has opinions on the other side of it. But coming to the end of segment on the bit of a lighter note, I guess we want to talk about freezing prices. Um, I just discovered that apparently Pusateri's is rolling their prices back <laughs> like they were in 1963 and offering 60% off several of their goodies over the next week in celebration of their 60th anniversary. Hey, a good deal is always a good thing to check out. And uh, I mean, Pusateri's is normally too expensive for me. So I'll definitely look at checking some of that out. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Tasting Together this week. We'll be back again next week at five o'clock with a whole new batch of hot topics. I promise you guys, we're going to talk about wine in a much lighter note next week. We have some fun stuff lined up. So make sure you set your clock for Tasting Together on 640 Toronto.